is our children learning? You didn't build that. Because you'd be in jail. All men and women created by the go, you know the you know the thing. Those are the leaders of the past, but here at Gen Z GOP, we are looking to the future. Join us as we discuss how we can create a party that is worthy of our generation. Please clap. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Gen Z GOP podcast. I am John Olds, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, L. Kalish and Javon Price. We are also joined today, and uh, we'll be hearing from them in just a moment, Sam Garber, our Executive Vice President, and Patton Byers, our uh, Vice President of Political Affairs. So welcome aboard, everybody. We have a jam-packed episode here, a lot to get to. And the topic of today's episode is going to be the ever-present COVID-19. And I think it's really important that we as young Republicans, young conservatives, and just young people sort of address the various parts of the the COVID-19 crisis because it's affected us all very differently and in a number of ways. Uh, so with that, I will, uh, I'll pass it off to one of you guys just to sort of get, get started here. And uh, I think we have a good episode. Yeah, I'm really excited for this week's episode. I think that COVID-19 has affected us all in different personal ways, um, some more than others. Um, But obviously, it's a really interesting time to be a young person in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that has a lot of different implications, Um, whether that comes down to, you know, basically just being in college during a pandemic or losing your senior year or, you know, also too being on the last end of the vaccine distribution cycle and kind of what that means for all of us and trying to get back to normal. It's absolutely crazy to think that um, you know, last year in March, we were on spring break, or at least I was living my best life and thinking that this uh, pandemic wouldn't, you know, would be maybe a couple of months. And to see where it is now, I'm going into, you know, I graduate in May and haven't seen some of my buddies, professors, and 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 just tons of people on on campus, and you know, almost a year now. I mean, it's absolutely wild, but uh, it's been a, it's been a crazy time to be alive, and hopefully. Um, you know, our generation learned something from this. So in the future, uh, you know, these pandemics are, from what it seems like, cyclical. So hopefully we, we take some of the lessons we learn now and, and bring it with us in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're going to start this episode off by kind of talking about our personal experiences with COVID-19. So I thought I'd actually kick that off by talking about kind of our experience in starting this organization in COVID-19. Um, so, you know, obviously we launched in July and I guess for most of us, the majority of us haven't even met each other in person, um, which is really funny. I mean, we spend hours a night talking and being on the phone, different Zoom calls, several hundred emails, um, and I've never seen most of you in person. <laughs> L was nice enough to come over the other day. Um, I did. I did come over. Very, very, uh, very COVID safe. Um, but it was so weird. Like you said, we've known each other for six months, but we only met for the first time then. I kept waiting for um, John to like turn his camera off, but you can't do that. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I'll start with my experience. I remember where I was. I was sitting, you know, six feet from where I am now in my apartment at school, and sort of sitting there and you hear about this weird virus and I had just been at CPAC and that was a whole weird thing that ended up being a big super spreader type of event as well. Um, but I was supposed to go on spring break. I was supposed to go down to Florida with my buddy. And I was like, Hey man, you know, I'm not sure if I really want to travel right now. I'm thinking, you know, we should wait for this to blow over. He goes, well, come on, John, just go down, go down. You'll be fine. I said, well, no. And then at the last second I canceled on him. And I said, I'll make a bet with you. I think this is going to last longer than you think. 
And he goes, oh, no, it'll be over in a couple weeks. And uh, I was right uh, for the haters and losers. Um, but it sucks. And I ended up spending the second half of my junior year at home and now uh, fully remote for all of my senior year. I'm not able to have a college graduation, or at least that's what we think is going to happen. And it's just an all around bummer. Um, I, I had, I lost a couple of family members. We had to have socially distant funerals, which suck when you can't hug your relatives at, you know, at a time of loss and grief. I mean, that's horrible. And it's it just sort of puts you at a loss for words, but it's a it's been a sucky time, but it seems like there's light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully we'll all be together soon. Yeah, so I want to say that I definitely think there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, granted, the past few couple of months have definitely been pretty turbulent. Um, I mean, I know for me, I remember being at school. I So I left to go abroad. I went to study abroad in uh, Madrid, Spain this past year. And um, so I was super excited. And I remember being at home around Christmas time and just like seeing in the news this like news about how there's some sort of flu in China. Um, and it's getting a lot of people really sick and at the time I didn't even really know that like stay-at-home orders were like a thing that actually happened in real life you know we hear about them in movies and different things like that but I never really expected to kind of interact with that um and so as I'm getting ready to go abroad you know I'm planning all these trips and all these things I'm gonna do and I was super super excited and so I did I went abroad and I met my host family and I was having the time of my life um and so then it was about Valentine's Day weekend and I went with a bunch of my friends to Barcelona um and admittedly there was like 15 of us uh, and we were staying in an Airbnb that like maybe slept nine like maybe um so we we're all like super cuddled up you know just kind of like trying to save a few bucks by having a cheap Airbnb in Barcelona and it was the last day and we had taken a bus from Madrid to Barcelona it's like an eight-hour drive um and so I remember I woke up on the last day and we were getting ready to clean the Airbnb and it was like painful for me to see I was like opening my eyes and it hurt really really bad and I was burning up and I was really confused so I made my like my host brother at the time kind of run to the store and grab a thermometer and we checked and I had a 103 degree fever I was like, wow, like what is going on? And then my other friend Hannah woke up and Hannah was also really sick. We're like, okay, like it's okay guys, like let's just get on our bus. So we get on our bus and we're like on our way back to Madrid. And as I'm sitting on this bus with probably like a hundred other people, um, I am like just feeling miserable. And so I texted my host mom who happened to be a nurse in Madrid. And I was like, hey, like what do you think I should do? Um, And she was like, I think the minute you get off your bus, you need to go to the hospital. I was like, okay, sounds good. So I go to the hospital and I'm really, really sick. And they're like, you have a huge fever. Um, they couldn't figure out what it was. And so I left the hospital and they told me that I had a viral respiratory illness. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Wonder what that is. Um, and then a week later, I noticed that I couldn't really hear. It kind of felt like everything that I was hearing was I was hearing like underwater. I'm like, you know, when you're in the shower and you can't feel like you can't get the water out of your ear. That's just like kind of how I was the entire time. And my ears were weirdly popping and I was just really miserable. And um, so I ended up having to go back to the hospital and they had told me that my eardrum had partially ruptured um, from all of the sinus pressure from whatever sickness I had had. Um, and they told me that eventually it would go away. Um, and so then finally I get on sick with COVID and I finally got to go on like my last trip and I went to Morocco. And while we were in Morocco, I remember hearing that all of my friends that were studying abroad in Italy got sent home. Um, and so I remember looking it up 
um, on Google and to see how many cases that Spain had. And that day that I had looked, Spain had had 16 cases. By the end of my weekend trip in Morocco, Spain had over 650 cases. Um, and it was just going up, like it was doubling, tripling overnight. And we actually went on a school trip that next week. And they kept telling us that we were overreacting, that we like shouldn't be freaking out. Um, and it just so happened that three days after we got back from that trip, we all got sent home. And then a day after that, the president was calling and letting us know that we needed to kind of leave Europe. Um, and so it kind of turned into just like this huge frenzy and this huge panic surrounding COVID. And I remember going to the doctor when I got home because I had found out one of the kids that I was traveling with had tested positive when he got home. Um, and I got a test and I was negative. And I was like, well, that's really weird. Like I had just shared a drink with this person the night before. We were sitting next to each other on the plane. Um, and so then finally I got an antibody test. But at the time, they weren't really running antibody tests. So I didn't get my results back for about a month. Um, and then a month later, I found out that I had COVID anybody. So that time that I was really sick in Barcelona and was hospitalized in and out, I actually had COVID-19. Um, and I actually haven't even gotten my hearing back since, you know, feeling like everything was underwater. So I have about 80% hearing in my left ear and about 55% hearing in my right ear as a result of COVID. Um, and it's like one of those things that that's almost been a year now and it doesn't get better and it's really confusing. And so I always like to say to my friends, you know, when they're not taking COVID seriously, that, you know, what's the point of going to a party if you're never going to be able to hear anything clearly that someone says to you again? Um, and so I think, you know, that speaks largely to having a personal experience with COVID makes it seem more real. Um, and I think that's broadly what was a problem at first was that many people didn't have those ex personal experiences with COVID. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think, um, you know, my COVID story is not nearly as uh, uh, eventful as, as yours, uh, to say the least. But I was actually in the beach uh, on the beach in Miami, living my best life when we had gotten an email from uh, it was right around the time when the university started sending out emails. So first, American University was like, they're not going back. And then GW said they're not going back. And so I'm searching, I'm refreshing, I'm refreshing. Of course, Georgetown, uh, they use snail mail. So I wound up getting a postcard. No, I'm just kidding. But we finally got our email. <laughs> we got our email uh, and uh, I, I lived it up my last week of spring break and have been, you know, came back to D.C. and I've been kind of on lockdown since then. So um it's interesting uh, that I think you know everyone has a different experience with this thing, but that nevertheless, I think it still has huge effects on all of us. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of sad. And I hope we get a chance either you know right now or later on to talk a little bit about policies. I'd love to talk more about how I think certain states handle it versus certain states did not handle it. And I think the bonuses, the pros and cons to really each method. So I don't know when we want to dig into that, but I am I'm anticipating that conversation. Yeah, so I was thinking that maybe we can kind of segue into that by talking about what our universities did. So I know that for at least like me, John and Javon, who are at some DC schools, we didn't go back at all. Uh, and we've been online since. Um, it's been almost a year and a half online now. But Sam, who's here with us today, is a freshman at Bates. And Bates went back, um, you know, at the start of the school year this year. So Sam, do you kind of want to talk about your experience at Bates and what worked for Bates and what didn't? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, so compared to Georgetown, GW, American, Bates is a lot smaller. Um, so testing was a lot easier uh, for them to be able to do uh, versus a larger school like GW, Georgetown, American. Um, so essentially, the policies that were put in place was, you know, you can only stay in your own residence hall. You can only go into your own residence hall, no guests. 
um, masks in all the classrooms. Um, you know, they used this special yardstick that they made to ensure that everybody was seated six feet apart, uh, you know, alternating chairs and lecture halls, um, and testing twice a week. Uh, so I would go over to the testing center, do the little nostril twirl, uh, give myself a bloody nose twice a week and get the result back on the did, phone. Did uh, you have the deep test, Sam? Did you have the one that went all the way up your nostril? Or did you have well, the one you had I'll tell blood? you what. It felt like it was deep, but apparently it wasn't. So I can't imagine what the deep one uh, would be, but um, I don't want to. I, I, I um, had a PCR experience, the one where they – its I, I call it the brain stab. <laughs> that thing is is not okay, not No, safe. it hurts. It like hurts. Like I remember crying the first time. She's like, are you okay? And I was just like, I don't know what to feel right now. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I have a fairly large head. I didn't know I had that much real estate up there. You do have a large head. You do have a you large head. Say. I was waiting for you to to, to admit that. Um, Must be but, a Massachusetts thing. Go ahead, Sam. I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. Um, but anyways, so we were able to you know have a testing program where everybody would get tested twice a week, get your results back within, I think, 12 hours, um, which was incredible. I don't know how they did it that fast. They partnered yeah, with the Broad Institute. that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, especially because the lab was all the way in Boston, three hours away. Um, so somebody would like literally drive all the tests down every single day to Boston and That's again, get the email result back. Um, but we managed to do pretty well. I think it with about, I want to say maybe up until two weeks before Thanksgiving, there was like maybe five, four or five cases total in the whole school out of like 2000 kids and, you know, several hundred faculty and staff. But as things did get colder and we got closer to Thanksgiving and the cases in the state of Maine began to rise, uh, cases, cases began to rise at school. Um, and so the school started to have to begin to think about what they should do, uh, both going forward, um, to be able to take care of that. Now, one policy decision that the school did make at the very beginning was we're going to send everybody home for Thanksgiving and not have anybody come back for the rest of the semester because mm -hmm. clearly leaving the state of Maine, everybody going to you know other countries, other states, being with their families, being in places where they couldn't control the community and then coming back would have caused a big problem, not to mention in the cold weather. Yeah, so that's something that I feel like we don't talk about enough. We talked about a lot at, you know, the beginning of COVID, uh, I think especially when it was only in certain states, um, and then obviously it eventually got everywhere. But I think it's really, really interesting to see how the different policies affected how well states did. Um, and then how, you know, just different things and how states operated, like really totally changed things. So obviously I, after, you know, being abroad and all that, I went back home to my house and I always like to say, I live literally on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin. Um, and so I lived in basically halfway in between one state that took it really seriously, which was Illinois, um, and, you know, responded really quickly. And then I lived in another state, essentially, you know, just a hot skip and a jump away where they didn't take it seriously at all. I think Wisconsin ruled essentially the pandemic unconstitutional in like April. Um, you know, that stay at home orders were not constitutional. Mass mandates weren't constitutional um, and all that stuff. And so I think that was really interesting to kind of experience like firsthand was to see 
one, not only like the state get completely confused on like what to do too, but to see the localized response after that. So depending on what county you were in in Wisconsin, the rules were completely different. So you could be in one county where everything was completely open. People didn't even have to wear masks in the grocery store. And then you would go over to another county that was like still in stay at home orders. Um, And so I think that had like, you know, a really disproportionate effect on what states did well and what states didn't do very well, simply based on what policies got happening. I mean, as soon as Wisconsin ruled it unconstitutional, the case numbers skyrocketed. I would just go on and add to, I know there's conversations about constitutionality and not, and I'm, I would welcome those too. But I also think that we misunderestimate uh, the effect that super strict lockdowns have had on small businesses and what states are going to be better coming out of this. We always talk about what's going on now, but there's a future. This is tomorrow, right? And so states that are have extremely tight lockdowns, I mean, unfortunately, you've seen small businesses destroyed. You look at a city like D.C., um, I, I couldn't tell you how many businesses are just done for. You look yeah. at places like New York and L.A., and a lot of times, let's be honest, these are black and brown businesses that may not have the same access, resource, access to capital, may not have the same resources, uh, or, or honestly, the institutional knowledge that some of you know their, their counterparts do. And so I understand many of the arguments for not having super strict and stringent lockdowns because at the end of the day, those disproportionately affect uh, certain groups, certain demographics, as does the virus, as we've seen, as we've seen too, Elle. Like those, just, you know, black and brown folks are less likely to uh, get the healthcare necessary, um, you know, to, 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 to combat this. So it's, yeah, it's, just, it's a really difficult problem. Just add a statistic there, um, black and brown, uh, communities are five times more likely to be hospitalized and to die of COVID-19 than the average white person, um, which, you know, think granted, I'm a big healthcare gal. They all know this. John called me, I think, like maybe 24 times uh, over this like past like COVID-19 pandemic being like, oh, where can I get a test? Or, hey, what about this? What are the chances uh, I have it, you know, since I like, like all of this stuff? Um, and so, you know, as from a health policy perspective, this has been really interesting. And I always like to say that there's always jobs in healthcare, but there are literally always jobs in healthcare, especially during a pandemic um, and all the different sides. And so I've gotten to see it, you know, firsthand, not only in my own lived life and like where I was like moving from Illinois to DC, you know, all of that stuff, but also like what the policy means. And so Javon kind of going off of what you had just said about the lockdowns um, and that stuff. I think that it's, you know, it's important to understand that when we were first pitched the lockdown, it was a temporary thing. It was, we're going to lock down for three weeks. And then, you know, many people thought, okay, you know, three weeks lockdown, maybe two months lockdown, life's back to normal. Um, And sadly, that didn't happen. And so I kind of want to just set the tone here and say, in the terms of how the United States locked down was very different than how any other country lockdown. So when South Korea locked down, when Europe locked down, we saw about 15% of their economic sector still being, you know, open and operational, that being like absolutely essential services. In the United States, we only saw about a 30% reduction in our economic sector during our lockdowns in terms of who was still going into work and all of that stuff. So we saw that folks that, you know, could do their jobs online, um, did. And that was you know pretty much embraced at first, right? But we also saw a lot of businesses stay open, um, maybe ones that necessarily didn't need to, or we saw folks kind of staying open and staying going out and staying able to do a lot of things that didn't happen. And so we saw our stay-at-home orders 
honestly not work that well. And so at first it was all about, you know, controlling that hospital capacity, controlling how many people were getting sent in so that our healthcare workers weren't getting overwhelmed. Uh, And I think that that was really the biggest downfall that the states had was that from the very start, our COVID-19 response was all sorts of different ways. Um, We had, you know, mixed public messaging in. Who are you staying home for? Because at first we were saying, all right, here's a stay-at-home order. We're staying home for, you know, frontline workers. We're staying home for our nurses and our doctors that are risking their lives. You know, we saw Yeah, there there did seem to be sort of like a community aspect to it at the beginning, right? Like we were all in it together. There was, I think CBS or whatever it was, it was sort of corny, but they did this like made for TV concert for America or something like that. Yeah. But it was, it was that sort of like feeling that you were on a wartime footing almost that, that we were kind of all in it together. Everybody had their yard signs about how, how much they love healthcare workers and all that stuff. Um, And I think at the beginning there, we did sort of have this like, uh, the sentiment that we were all pulling in the same direction. But then at some point, right around the beginning of May, maybe end of May, we sort of had this sort of divergence where some states really opened up, some states didn't. Um, a topic that I always come back to that really sort of confounds me is the schools. I mean, we had, um, we have, as we heard on this podcast, there's such a disparity in how we've experienced school uh, during COVID where, you know, me, Javon, and Elle haven't been in a classroom for over a year. And Sam, you know, he'll be going back to school uh, in a couple of weeks, right? Or whatever it is. And I think that that's such a major failure um, of policymakers in the sense that we've prioritized certain things over the education of our children. I mean, if, if there's one thing that we should collectively have, you know, come together on in terms of our reopening strategy. It's how do we get children back in this, back into, into the classroom? Because that's ultimately the atrophy, the, the loss of learning that you're going to see through this crisis is going to be massive. And it's not only affecting students, it's affecting parents who had to stay home with their kids to, you know, help them with, you know, algebra or, you know, art classes and keeping them active. And that takes a major toll on productivity uh, both for their jobs and for the students' development. So that's just a, a major sort of mismatch in priority. Yeah, well, priority. You, know, you, really you said me. that we, you know, we all came together kind of at the beginning. But I think, you know, I don't really think we, you know, I think community-wise, we did come together and we were kind of like, you know, we're all in this for the long haul or whatever. But there are things that we just didn't even come together on at the first place that were totally our fault. I mean, like, let's talk about the politicizing of mask wearing, you know, in the sense of people aren't wrong to have that idea of saying, oh, masks don't work because the CDC said that. And the problem was that the CDC said that so that we could make sure that all of these, you know, PPE was was available to you know, healthcare workers, because we saw a huge shortage of our national stockpile, you know, globally, like, where are we getting it from? Is it high quality? Is there, you know, opportunity for fraud here with all of that stuff? And so we quite literally told people, don't wear a mask because a nurse needs it. Well, then two months later, or a few weeks later, we said, just kidding, you do have to wear a mask. And so that's the thing is, I think when we talk about public health and public health policy, 
you have to understand that what you tell the public right away is going to be really important. And so sometimes it's almost better to be over dramatic with what you tell the public at the first at, in the first place, so that when things start to trickle down, you know, when we get into month, you know, seven, eight, nine of the pandemic, people still understand what you told them at the very beginning. But what we told them at the very beginning was don't wear that mask because a nurse needs it. And so now we have this politicized issue where it's almost kind of become a little bit of a class thing or even a party thing in the sense of we have folks saying, well, you know, masks don't work. Masks aren't real. They're not going to help anyone. When in reality, that's just based off of something that we said to try and prevent something else. Um, And so that's really difficult. And so it's that idea when we talk about what happened or did we come together on it? The, you know, the sad answer is we didn't really come together on anything other than, hey, sit on your couch for a few weeks. Um, And that really hurt us. And that hurt us with going back to schools because, you know, we heard people, you know, segueing back to the mask thing. We heard people saying, well, how am I going to expect my four-year-old to keep a mask on? Um, And then if this isn't even true, if these masks don't work, why am I asking my four-year-old to put it on? Um, And those are all very you know, valid questions and things that we should have answered, but we didn't. And so instead of sitting down and saying, okay, hey, actually, this is how masks work. Like, you don't wear a mask to protect yourself. You wear a mask to protect everyone else. And then therefore, it protects you, right? If we could have said that at, at the at the very get-go, then we would have been in a very different situation, but we didn't. And so now we have folks saying, well, I'm not going to wear that. That's useless. All of these things. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene wearing her mask below her net or below her nose, you know, not even taking one when they went into lockdown in within the state cat or within the United States Capitol, you know, all these things. And that's just the basic thing, you know, a very basic thing that we really fumbled on. And so I think when looking at our overall COVID-19 policy, we can't be surprised that it's been a massive failure when we couldn't even tell people properly what they needed to do at the beginning. I want to I want to play a game. I want to play a game. Who was the biggest winner and biggest loser in terms of policymakers uh, on oh, COVID, easily Charlie Baker, always Charlie Baker. <laughs> All right, Sam, you're a little biased. As well. is uh, DeSantis, I think coming out of this, Florida will be in a much stronger place than most states. I absolutely believe that economy-wise, uh, and I think uh, if you look at it, people are flying down to Florida to try and get a vaccine because it has been a cluster. You know what? In uh, in a lot of you know, the Californias, the New Yorks, uh, even in D.C., you know, there, there's been a lot of political aspects to that. Uh, and and it, that, that's what I would say. I think the biggest loser, uh, as it should be, is Andrew Cuomo, because that dude is just all over the place. You write a book in the middle of a pandemic. Oh, that upsets me so much. Has been, you know, uh, you know, damn near pariah-like. And, and, and now and now look at him. So ridiculous. And, and, and I think that's what pisses me off the most. And I just want to kind of speak to the political aspect. You know, I love to bring it back into how this works. When And I think, oh, you brought up a good point. The CDC gave mixed guidance early on, right? And now we get to a point where people are saying, follow the science. And John, I'm going to bring this full circle with you talking about education policy. Kids need to go back to school. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't a question. We understand that the lowest group at risk. We understand that, uh, like I just said, disproportionate communities lose out when these kids aren't going to school. Uh, we know that those kids lose out when they're not going to school. And the kids who do have the opportunity to go back to school, I've seen plenty of private schools back to school. And we know that black and brown folks are usually not in those private schools, right? And so they're usually the ones in the public schools. And they're losing out on the necessary education they need to advance in this life. So I don't want to hear follow the science when the science is telling you that kids are available or able to go back to school. And then we don't send them back to school. Yeah, you know, so in Fairfax want- County, if I, could, if I just could real quick, in Fairfax County, the, you know, the, the public school teachers, 
demanded that before kids go back to school, they all need to get vaccinated. So they sat their asses in line and got vaccinated, right? Before all those families, before all those other workers. And then after they got vaccinated, they sat at home and say, okay, now we need to wait. And so they jumped the line, promising that they would you know, be ready to get kids back in school, got vaccinated, and now they want to sit back, you know? So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm at my wits end with it. No, I, I, so hear me out. I'm at my wits end with it too, especially with the school stuff. My mom is a school teacher um, and I've watched her, you know, try to teleteach. Um, and it's one of those things where my mom teaches in a very underprivileged school. The overwhelming majority of her school is on free and reduced lunch. Um, the overwhelming majority of her school did not have access to internet at home. The overwhelming majority did not have access to the technology to be able to do e-learning. Um, you know, she always like to say that it was hard for her to teach when she was in the classroom. You know, it's hard enough to engage students, especially when they're in underprivileged scenarios where, you know, where a lot of her school too is homeless. Um, And so it's this sense of it's already hard enough to engage students when you're there. Um, And now you're trying to do all of this and everyone has stuff going on in life. I don't know a single person that has not had their life completely uprooted because of COVID-19 in at least some drastic way. And we don't even think about how that, you know, impacts things or how that impacts your relationship at home when you're used to your parents going off to work and you go off to school and then you guys spend together when you get back home but now you've been in the house for you know the same 24 hours every single day and you're not leaving and what does that do with family tensions um and all that stuff too and that all is now being brought into the classroom i mean i think i was one of those kids that always used school as an escape right when things were bad at home or when things were going on i always had school Um, but you don't have that anymore and now you have zoom and so trying to watch all of this happen is hard um, and it's impossible. And like when we're talking about the science behind it, there is no good science as to why our students shouldn't be back in school. Um, and that's what's so Who's frustrating. Winner and loser? Winner and, loser? winner and loser in terms of policy. Yeah. In terms of policy. Hmm. Okay. So I'm going to bring that back to, I guess, education or saying, I think the winner um, is the University of Illinois. So the University of Illinois has about over 30,000 kids um, that go to the University of Illinois, and they made sure that each one of their kids is getting tested twice a week. Uh, And they were able to kind of stay open throughout the entire semester. And this is a giant state school. This is a school that had sports going on. This is a school that had classes and clubs meeting in person. We saw students even being able to go out to bars and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's because they had such a good response. I would say loser is every single student that's sitting at home on their couch. Um, And, you know, I think we can also say, you know, losers are overall, you know, who we expect them to be. The states without, you know, the the money saved up in the rainy day funds to be able to deploy that on vaccine distribution or test distribution when we couldn't get it from the federal government. You know, states that didn't have those national connections to know that they could call up someone like Gavin Newsom and try and get more tests. Um, you know, those are all of the losers. The losers are the people that exactly who we expected it to be. Um, And I think that that's the most upsetting part is when we were predicting all of this and we were doing all of our policy, we knew who the losers were going to be. And we did nothing to make sure that they weren't losers. Um, And that's upsetting. That's really upsetting. (laughs) Well, and I think another another interesting thing that we're going to look at going forward is, you know, look at all these first, second, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth graders. They're not going to be able to read. And so we have a whole generation probably of school children who have struggled, especially being online. Um, that's what I, that's, I mean, I, we can only imagine what the economic impact of that is going to be going forward. So I think that's a loser. 
No, I, ju- I just wanted to say, I think El brings up a good point in terms of the, the winner being um, a university that, that handled it well. I mean, my brother's school did the exact same thing, Northeastern University. You know, you got tens of thousands of kids that go there uh, at the, both the undergraduate and the graduate level, and they were able to pull off testing every three days. I mean, and that's, that's really well, that, good. It, and they've it, had, it's not even the Their positivity rate is like... Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, I mean, it's they're, everything they're else that it's everything else that they did. Like, I mean, let's talk about wins in terms of pandemic. Wins being like what we've been able to figure out that we can do. I mean, like the University of Illinois had an app and it had their testing results on the back end of that app. So when you were going into a building, you had to scan your phone. And if the light was green, then you're able to go in. And if not, it physically would not let you into that building. Um, and so we saw all these things, you know, technology we can use to like make it be better or, you know, different things that we can do. Like it was cool. Like the University of Illinois had testing sites in the quad in these huge tents. So you can go when it's convenient for you. Um, and so I think that that, that that it's been like in terms of winners, the winners are the people who said, OK, this is this is this is the problem. This is our obstacle. And then thought of the creative ways to get around it. Like, you know, I obviously love the school that I go to, but I've been so disappointed to see my university not even try. You know, we live in D.C. We live in an area of D.C. that is like pretty done pretty well throughout the pandemic. Um, and it's like one of those things, too, where our school most likely would have been able to pull it off and they didn't even try. And so I think that that's the thing too, like the winners in terms of the pandemic are the people that said, this is the obstacle and this is the creative way that I'm going to solve it. Um, and some people weren't even up for the challenge to attempt to even solve it. You know, I, I also, if I could, I, I would like to pivot the conversation just a little bit to the actual distribution of the vaccine. And I think that this is causing, I guess, some anxiety within folks. But when we compare our nation to other countries in this world. I think that we'd like, I think most Americans don't understand what federalism is. And I don't say that in a very high mighty place, because I think this is my first real example of seeing how federalism actually works in action, right? So the federal government sat there and bought these vaccines and then distributed X quantity to all 50 states. Those states then had the jurisdiction, those governors had the jurisdiction to decide how they would then allocate those vaccines, how they would then disperse that uh, and, and uh, administer those vaccines essentially to their population. So if you look at a state like Florida, what Governor DeSantis decided to do was, you know, then allocate the X amount of vaccines per county. And then each county was then said, hey, you can pair with hospitals and great institutions like Publix to try and take the, uh, you know, public-private approach to administering the vaccine. And frankly, even though I know it's been a little frustrating because you have to schedule an appointment online and all this jazz, I would say that's probably a better approach than having it only through, say, a government testing center. Because then you see things like, you know, that's what they were experiencing at first. And that's why they saw those really long lines. And they said, hey, let's open it up to public. Let's try to get some private companies who are used to administering vaccines on some level, whether it be the flu vaccine or, or some type of you know, healthcare. And so... I just think that different ways states have administered the vaccine uh, is interesting. And I know, again, I, I'm more focused on how states come out of this and what states do better. South Dakota is another one, Christy Noam. I think she's done a great job. Her population is completely different than Florida's. Okay. But I I'm, think actually, really I'm actually going to push you on that one. Um, so I don't know if you guys saw it. It circulated on Twitter two, a few days ago. Uh, Christy Nome was at a rodeo with several thousand people all right next to each other. Uh, South Dakota, actually, it's one in every 500 that have died 
of their total population. And so I think that when we're talking about who we're celebrating here, I don't want to just celebrate the person that, you know, opened up and did well. I think DeSantis is different than Christine Noem, right? Because not only did DeSantis open up Florida, you know, they kept their case count down, you know, at least relatively to having kind of a, you know, open economy. But someone like Christine Noem kind of just gave up. And I'm not trying to slight her in the sense of like, I'm not saying that she's not an effective leader, but I don't think that her COVID-19 response deserves to be celebrated because I don't really think there was one. I think there's a difference between having educated policy that opened up your economy and made the necessary, you know, trade-offs that you needed to and understanding that your case count's going to go up, but also increasing testing. And then there's the governors that said, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to take the rhetoric route on this. I'm going to say, we're going to open up the economy. We're going to do it this way. And so they open the economy and they did it that way, but they didn't take any of those other extra steps. And that's how we see one in every 500 South Dakotans die. And so I, I think what's it's-, their, it's, what, it's okay, what's their population? I think you need we need a relative on that because saying one in 500 is a quantity to me, given a state that probably, I don't want to disrespect any South Dakotans, but I believe they have, what, one represent, one at large, maybe two. So their population size so. is about, it's almost 900,000 people, which granted is less than Florida, but still- um, I mean, even when even when you look at it proportionally, their response just like wasn't that great. And so I think that but I think that that's an important lesson for us in saying that it, it's true in the sense of rhetoric does one thing and action does another. I mean, we see that with the vaccine. We've seen Virginia have a completely awful vaccine distribution rollout. Um, you know, not they can't find people to do it. So here's the, here, I look, dude, I got I got some bones to pick with Virginia. I'm not going to lie in the way that. So on in Virginia, the only way the only way you can sign up for a vaccine is to be able to sign up via the website, and it's not hard to find. It's oh sorry, it's not easy to find that link on that website. And then additionally, you can then only accept certain email types, right? So your mainstream email types like Gmail, Yahoo, all these different things, but your older ones, um, they don't accept. And so I think that's my thing is like when I'm looking at all my those, grandma right now. All those- all those seniors that have email accounts, they're all AOL accounts. Yeah, and I was gonna they say. rejected that type of email. Uh, and then they had the audacity, I think in the Spanish version of the website, if I'm not mistaken, they said that the vaccine was optional or like not recommended or they the Ridiculous. translation from the Spanish to the English made it seem like the vaccine was like not so encouraged, which is just worse governor. He is the worst governor in this country. I'm a native Virginian. I can't stand blackface or KKK, man. Whatever one, take your choice because that's what we've got, essentially. Uh, well, so- I, I mean, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I kind of want to, you know, bring Patton into this. Patton, I know you're from uh, the great state of South Carolina. And so, yep. uh, you know, I, I just think it's important to know that the differences, right? So tell me how your state essentially is going about it because in dc we shut down indoor dining sure more business yeah. failed and had more restrictions and more businesses failed and so yeah. as you can tell I'm, I'm on the opposite end of the, i'm probably on the more south carolina route than i am the dc route but go ahead yeah uh thank you for bringing me in um south carolina we have opened up basically everything um fo- there was sec football for twenty-five thousand fans in stadiums Restaurants are fully open. Uh, so, I mean, I've been to restaurants where literally you you like have to wait to be seated. And I mean, a lot of people have not felt that in years or feels like years at least. Um, our vaccine distribution has not been good. I will say that uh, it's the same thing with, with Virginia. Now, I'm not so sure, sir, about the Spanish language thing, uh, but I will say it was um, with the 60, I think, I believe it's 75 and up. 
uh, are allowed to get a vaccine right now. Um, and that right now it's through email as, as well. And obviously 75 and up are not the greatest at checking their email or slash using or knowing how to even set one up. Um, so we are having some issues with that. Uh, at one time, I believe in December, our state, our state hospitalization rate was 96% or the ICU. Um, so literally there was people I know um, that could not even go into the hospital when they needed to go get checked when they had a fever for two weeks. Uh, so they just had to go home and hope, literally hope for the best. Um, so there have been moments like that, but there also have been moments where um, the economy has been doing better in this state. So it just, it just depends on what you pick is better or what's worse. I, I you know, and maybe this is the, the, the Republican in me. I just, I'm not, I'm not a fan of super harsh lockdowns. I mean, I just, I just don't know how you can credibly convince people. I don't think it's in our culture as Americans. Yeah. I think it's very difficult to tell people or have the federal government tell people, Hey, I'm going to lock you up in your house. And then you had, remember early on, they were also introducing like fines of like this crazy amount. If you had broken your stay at home order or something. I mean, I just don't think we're set up to legislate this in the way that we think we are. I, I think a bottom-up approach would have been way better. I think a top-down approach, Americans are generally distrustful of the federal government. But there's no way you can convince me that, you know, having the president, no matter which party it is, uh, you know, going and trying to tell everybody what to do is going to be the, the best thing when he's, half the time, they're disliked by half the population. So I don't know, you know what I mean? It just doesn't make sense to me on the rollout. Uh, no, Javon, I'm, I'm entirely on your side with this. I think it's one of those things where, like I said at the beginning, I think when we were talking stay-at-home orders when they were like, you know, two or three weeks long, okay, that's like, that's one thing, right? You know, our hospitals are overwhelmed. Let's just cut it off. Uh, so at first it was like really supportive. And then eventually it just, it ended up just being this thing where I think that stay-at-home orders and kind of how we handled them has what you just said is instilled so much mistrust with the government and how they're handling COVID-19. And, you know, from a public health perspective, that's really terrifying for me. I spend, you know, most of my day talking about public health and looking learning about vaccine distribution and all of that stuff. And part of the you know, biggest problems when we talked about vaccine, which is that light at the end of the tunnel that we were talking about at the beginning, is the vaccine is really kind of what gets us out of where we are right now. And we saw a huge, I mean, even right now, we see a huge portion of Americans that don't want to get vaccinated. Um, and that's because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. So I think I'm going to use this as an opportunity to educate everyone a little bit um, and talk about the different types of vaccines, because I think that's something how we've talked about in terms of where that mistrust come from is essentially, you know, people not understanding how vaccines work. And so John, Javon, Sam, Patton have all heard me use this analogy before, but the biggest way that I like to explain our different types of vaccine distribution is pretend instead of we were in a pandemic, we were in a famine, right? And so the government is now in charge of making sure that everyone can get food so that we can make sure that we don't have this famine. And so how this looks like is you can go one different way. And that's exactly how we're doing it with the vaccines. So you have two different types of vaccine. You've got your first, you have the mRNA vaccine, and then and you have your typical like flu shot vaccine that's just one shot. And, and so the difference between them is essentially how you could respond to this famine. So obviously it would take the government way more longer if we were to get all of the seeds, plant the food, cultivate the food, then harvest the food, and then figure out who, where that food's going to go to who, right? And so that's what we can kind of look for when we're talking about, you know, your single shot vaccine, which is the J&J vaccine that just released their data this last week, um, is essentially that strategy to where you take your antibodies and you make sure that you have 
you, your body starts producing all these antibodies and that's what that does. And then you have your mRNA vaccine. And so what that does instead is it takes all those seeds that we were talking about before and sends them directly to you, to yourself. And it says, now you're going to make the food and then you can fix the famine by feeding yourself based off the food that you produce. And so that's what an mRNA vaccine is, right? So what that mRNA does is it changes the spike protein and essentially tells your body to start producing these different types of antibodies to, you know, get over and give immunity to, you know, COVID-19 and what's going on. And so this is new technology. And I want to throw it out there on the table that this isn't experimental technology. And so we saw the media say, hey, we're using this experimental technology to give you a COVID-19 vaccine so we can get out of the pandemic. So you saw a bunch of people being like, why would I take an experimental vaccine? Well, let's be honest here. There were Democratic candidates who sat there and got on that stage and told half of the country that voted for them that they didn't trust the vaccine. So let's not pretend that there wasn't a political aspect to it. And this is what really bothers me is that we say again, follow the science, school's not open. Now you gotta take the vaccine. Well, you said you wouldn't trust one that was administered by this president that you are fully taking advantage of. You sat there and lied when you got there and said you didn't have any COVID plan when the biggest difference that you've added on to the pre President Trump's plan was you added a national mask mandate. You have yeah. resources there. Like it, it, it's, it's getting a little bit ridiculous to me. Yeah. And I, I, that's why I don't like the political aspect of it because there's a lot of rhetoric, right? And Democrats, again, have this holier than thou, uh, at least many that I've met when, when it comes to the vaccine or, you know, the, this moral superiority where oftentimes it's just rhetoric. And that's what really bothers me. But I know uh, John wanted to talk just briefly a little bit about some of the GOP governors like DeWine, like Ducey and like Hogan. So if you want to take it away, John. Yeah, I think, you know, we brought up Christy Noem, we brought up Ron DeSantis, but I think that there are some lesser known governors on the Republican side that have done a really good job, whether it's both handling the pandemic itself or getting vaccines out there. And another one I'll add is is Jim Justice out of West Virginia, who's been spectacular at sort of coordinating with local pharmacies, local businesses. Uh, they've set up a command center, I think, in uh, in the middle of West Virginia where they've been able to deploy National Guard to get vaccine doses to like mom and pop pharmacies, which is excellent. And I think John, it's really important. So go ahead, Sam. If, if I can, if I can add, I think that the key thing that we're also forgetting about Jim Justice in West Virginia is West Virginia is a state that's incredibly low income, has a really, really tough state budget. Education is a major factor um, and, and the health infrastructure just isn't there. So the fact that he, as you said, he was able to do all of that, given the cards that he was dealt with, I think that, that it's really something else. I think it's also got the highest rate of, of comorbidities of, of any, uh, state in the nation, which is sort of just an insane thing to think about, but that's sort of what happens when you harness the power of markets and communication and logistics and just general competence. I think that's what Republicans can bring to the table in terms of leadership, where you have, you know, some people on, you know, some parts of our party that might be downplaying the crisis to a, um, a dangerous degree. And you have some people on the Democratic side that are just alarmist about everything. I mean, there's like, you know, oh, one change in the spike protein, we have to go into our houses and sit on our asses for another six months. And it's like, you know, there's there's got to be a middle ground where we just take a step back, take a, you know, a dispassionate look at things and and figure out the best way to do that. And I think that's what the Republican Party can do. Um, but if anyone has any last thoughts about where we go from here, any predictions from where, you know, when John can go out to a bar with his friends without being terrified of them, uh, what what is what's going on? 
Yeah, so I would love, love to talk about this. Um, And it kind of talks about something, you know, I was bringing up earlier about how the media really hasn't handled COVID-19 very well. And it's led to a lot of misunderstanding of kind of where that end goal is. And so I guess I'll kind of try and take this in terms of where we're going. And so let's talk about it in a few different terms. One, let's address the fact that there are a few new variants of COVID-19. And let me be the one to tell you that our vaccines that we have right now are still indeed effective against these new variants. They might not be as effective um, as they originally were on the original variant of COVID-19, but that does not mean that they're not helpful. Um, And that definitely does get us a few inches closer towards, you know, getting to the end of this tunnel and making sure that we can all get drinks one day, actually physically in person. Um, But more importantly, it brings back to those different vaccine types. So as I was saying before, actually the mRNA vaccine, so to put in more colloquial terms, the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, Um, those can actually be very, very easily changed to respond to the new variant of COVID-19. And so that's when we saw the data from J&J this past week, where we saw that after 28 days, 100% of the people that were administrated the vaccine were not hospitalized, did not die, and did not get deathly versions of COVID. And that is huge. Um, Instead, instead, though, we saw the media saying, oh, no, the J&J vaccine is only 66% effective, right? Well, that's not necessarily what that means. The the J&J vaccine only being 66% effective means that it's only 66% effective at preventing you being able to contract COVID-19. And so I want to say, you know, firmly from a public health perspective that we don't need to stop the transmission of COVID-19 to get this to end. What we need to do is we need to stop COVID-19 from being deadly, from keeping people in the hospital, from allowing our hospitals to get overrun, right? Because that's what gets us back to normal. And so the fact that we now we have a very traditional vaccine that's one shot you don't need two boosters you don't need to refrigerate it you can give it and you can keep it for as long as you want those doses don't expire that's absolutely huge because it gets us to the point where we can kind of prioritize our most vulnerable that in being our you know folks above 75 you know to get the mrna vaccine that is preventing complete you know getting COVID-19, but then give everyone else, you know, these more generic vaccines. And so then that gets us there. Um, And so I also want to say, you know, you just firmly that all of what you're hearing in the media about how Joe Biden was left with no vaccine plan is absolutely not true. There was 110% a vaccine plan, and it's incredibly a huge slap in the face to all of the career HHS, CDC, FDA workers who were told that there was no vaccine plan um, when indeed there was. And the vaccine plan is almost exactly identical to the current vaccine plan that Joe Biden is distributing on. And so I think that when we're kind of, you know, moving forward and we're looking at this, we have to understand that public health for the sake of us, for the sake of this next pandemic we have, cannot be politicized. I don't care who is in office. I don't care what happens. Operation Warp Speed was absolutely incredible. We have not seen anything like it. We got a vaccine in a very short amount of time. We got very effective vaccines in a short amount of time. And we owe that to the private sector. Um, And that's going to continue to happen. So when we're talking about how do we get to this next stage and what happens next, we're really going to see the private sector ramp up what they've been doing. We've already seen it. We've seen Sanofi say that they're going to start producing over 100 million vials of the Pfizer vaccine. And that's going to continue to happen. And so when we look at this at the end of the day, I just wanted to be known that we saw our government completely fumble the bag on this. And we saw the private sector who we continuously criticize and ridicule save the day. 
And so when we're talking about public health and where we're going next, I think we need to understand that sometimes there are better people to handle this stuff than the government. And we learned that firsthand in the pandemic. Um, And so when we're talking about where we're going next, I hope everyone knows that that light at the end of the tunnel is indeed coming. This will indeed end soon. Um, And I hope that overall on both sides and especially the Republican Party and everyone else can say this was a learning experience for us. It's never going to happen again and we're going to make it better the next time it does. And that is where we will leave it on episode two. Uh, Special thanks to Elle and Javon. Uh, for another great episode, and Patton and Sam for joining us. As of today, we have 6 million Americans that have had two doses of their vaccine so far. Uh, There's over 33 million shots in arms already. That's a testament to American leadership and American excellence. So join us uh, in a couple of weeks for our next episode, and we will see you then.